Hey guys, JM here, Zyple Dojo, and we had a camera battery issue at Ruth's Chris this past session, this past Tuesday, which stinks because it was a really good session. And speaking, teaching live in front of people is way more fun than sitting here having to recap it here in the office. But we did; it is what it is. And um, we, I know we have people that follow along and listen on the podcast, and we can't leave out Deuteronomy 32 as you've been following along all year in this study. Because 32 is really one of the most important passages in the entire book. Deuteronomy 32, this is the song that God told Moses to teach to Israel that was going to lay out basically all of Israel's history moving forward, particularly their history of rebellion against God that Moses is seeing and God's showing him in advance. And so this song, as we saw last week, is something of like a covenant lawsuit. It's something of a prosecution that Israel will learn it and every generation it will stand there as a silent actually not silent because they're singing it as an audible testimony against Israel should Israel disobey and turn away from the covenant, which is what God hopes, what Moses, especially Moses hopes this song will prevent is Israel seeing what can happen and, and saying, no, we're not going to go that route because this is what awaits us if we do. So this song is this fascinating, uh, this, this kind of high point in the book of Deuteronomy at the end, at the very end to recap what's coming in uh, in the years ahead. And so in the song, there's some textual issues. There's a couple of passages where the Septuagint reading and the Hebrew Bible reading are different. And so your translations, NIV, New Revised, DSV, whatever you're reading, they may pick, they may go with the Septuagint reading over the Hebrew reading or vice versa. And so it's important to check your footnotes as you're going through the song, the little italic footnotes in your translation, because usually they will tell you what's going on in terms of which textual tradition is being followed. We'll look at those in just a second. Now, <clears throat> I've had a cough for the past few weeks, so you have to excuse me, especially those of you listening on the podcast. I apologize. It's annoying. I can't do anything about it. <clears throat> so bear with me. But we're back in Exit, uh, Excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, and we pick up, and it says, this is the beginning of this song. This is the, the summoning of the witnesses, so to speak. The song starts, listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain. Let my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. People, let my word, God is saying, soak into every crack, every crevice, every part of you as if it's dew or rain in a drenched, I mean, in a dry and parched land. This is the call to this. God summoning all of the creation because this song is going to be cosmic in scope. And now the great suzerain king, if you follow it along, you know what that is. He begins to identify himself. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Begins by Yahweh. God, our God is faithful. He's right. He's the rock. He's just. But this is a song of condemnation to Israel because verse 5 switches immediately. They, Israel, have acted corruptly towards him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. In this way, you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? 
Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father. He'll tell you. Your elders, they'll explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Now, I'm going to pause here real quick. If you're reading along in your NIV, you go, wait a minute, that's not what my Bible just said. Because verse 8 in the NIV says, according to the number of the sons of Israel. Well, that's what the Hebrew Masoretic text says. But the earlier Septuagint text and the even earlier Dead Sea Scrolls, they say basically according to the number of the either the angels of God or the sons of God. So what's going on here? Well, what this passage is hinting at, and I say hinting because sometimes people like to take something and say, oh, well, this teaches this, and then let's pull from this verse, and that teaches that, and they come up with all kinds of stuff that the Bible's not teaching. There's a thread that runs through Scripture that you'll see in the Old Testament. You see it in Isaiah 24 and Psalm 82 and Daniel chapter 10, that in some way, God is imminent. God is everywhere. He, he hears, you know, no, no bird falls to the ground without God hearing it. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Yes, he's, he's, this is part of the mystery of God, being omniscient, omnipresent. But also in his administration of creation, whatever that looks like, he has appointed, it seems, uh, divine beings, semi-divine beings, angelic beings, to oversee various aspects of his creation. That's about as far as we get in Scripture in terms of what that looks like. You know, Daniel has a conversation with one of these beings, and there is something about just in the heavenlies that there are different spiritual realities in different places of the different people groups in the world. And so what this song, and remember, this is a song. This is not a philosophical treatise. It's not explaining demonology or angelic geography. But what the song is saying is it's making a point. When the Most High, verse 8, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, in other words, gave all of the and nations... Nations doesn't mean like we think today, geographical states with invisible borders. Nations in the Hebrew mind and in the Greek New Testament, in fact, is, is uh, ethne, peoples, people groups, goi. And the nations, the people groups around the world have their inheritance, have their lands, have their places. And so what, what the author, what the song is teaching Israel is, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, meaning according to the number of the different angelic beings that would help administer whatever it is that they do. Again, we have to be super wary of reading in all kinds of mythical interpretations into a song lyric. But the idea is that there are territorial-based or, 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 or national-based sons of God, angelic beings that are at work in this world. About as far as we can go. When God did all of that, however, the point of the song is, he set up boundaries according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his inheritance. In other words, God set up the world so that all the other peoples had their 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 places and their their overseers, their spiritual protectors or, 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 or supervisors. But Jacob, God's covenant people, Israel, God is there watcher. God is their guardian. God is their king. God is their suzerain. So out of all the nations of the earth, in some inexplicable way, the covenant people of God, and that's who Israel is, not ethnic Israel, 
not geographic Israel. We've already seen through these past five years of looking at Torah that people can be ethnically Israel or geographically Israel, but not be covenant Israel. We've seen people get cut off. We've seen people who are not ethnically Israel, who are not geographically Israel, be brought into Israel and become part of Israel. So again, Israel's borders are covenantal. They're not racial and they're not geographical. Huge implications for today and how we look at the world. But Israel, covenant Israel, was God's allotted portion. They, he, he intimately oversees them in a way that he has not in all of the rest of the nations, is what the songs say. Then it goes on to describe, verse 10, In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. What's the apple of your eye? I always thought of like a nice apple, especially juicy apple. Um, you know, the golden apple from Greek mythology or something. No, the apple of your eye, this, this term in Hebrew, it means the pupil. It means, you know, the little... If you look in somebody's eye, you see a little man there. It's actually your reflection back. But that that concept, that is the apple of someone's eye. That's what you guard, especially if you're in a dry and a dusty land where there's sandstorms and there's things that can blow and get in your face, where, where there's no glasses or optometrists or anything like that. You guard the apple of your eye. You guard the pupil of your eye. It's the most intimate, one of the most intimate parts of your body. It's so delicate. But it's so important. And that's how God's speaking of Israel. <laughs> Israel is the apple of his eye. So delicate, but so important. He goes on to talk about his relationship to Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, caring for them in the wilderness. He says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. This is image going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Spirit of God hovering like an eagle over creation. That spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord led him. No foreign god was with him. So uh, a number of scholars think what this imagery is, is God's explaining to Israel, hey, you know, you know how mama birds, eagles, teach their babies to fly? What do they do? They stir up the nest. They knock them out of the nest. The babies fall. They have to learn to fly on the way down. Mom's there hovering so that if they fall, fall too far without flying, mom swoops in and catches them on her back, pops them back up to safety. And then does it all over again. And eventually through the falling, the struggling, the sphere, eventually baby bird learns to fly. Gets kicked out of the nest, no big deal. Learns to fly. That's part of it. That's, that's where even that phrase, getting kicked out of the nest or empty nesters or all of that, these modern English terms. But it, it traces itself back in some way to that. God's saying, yeah, I'm mama bird. I've been doing that. I've been teaching baby bird how to fly, Israel. Not any other gods. Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Isis, none of the other gods of the, of the surrounding peoples are doing this. Marduk's not the one kicking you out of the nest and then catching you before you dash yourself on the rocks. No, me, Yahweh, I'm the one doing it. I'm Mama Bird. And so he goes on to say, verse 13, so as Israel then comes into their own, the suzerain king, God, has provided graciously for them. He made him ride on the heights of the land. He fed him with the fruits of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock, with oil from the flinty crag. Uh, and not oil like we think of oil from the ground, but this is referring to olive trees that grow in the, in the rocky, craggy, dry, flint uh, barrenness. And yet they produce this olive oil that's the life of people even to this day. 
with curds and milk from the herd and flock, with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. So he's talking about all these images of fertility. This is all the stuff that Baal and Asherah and the Egyptian gods claim to be able to provide. And God is recounting, no, Israel, when you were in the land, I provided this stuff for you. I did that. Now, this is, this is taking place now. It's looking forward into the future. And then speaking of the things happening between now and then as if looking back. So what God's saying is, <laughs> excuse me, he's recounting how all of the ways that he will bless Israel. And because of that, Israel, who is his upright one, and there's a nickname for Israel, uh, Yeshurun, Jeshurun in your Bible. And it, it comes from the word Yeshar, which means upright. So it's kind of a, it's a nickname for Israel, you know, Jerusalem, Israel, uh, Yeshurun, upright one. God uses it ironically here, but verse 15, but Yeshurun, upright, grew fat and kicked. Filled with blood, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him. He rejected the rock, his savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God, gods they've not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And the Hebrew term in there implies labor, giving birth in pain. I love this. This is the second time in this song. First it's Mama Eagle. Now verse 18. God is describing his relationship with Israel. First as the God who fathered you. But then the God who gave you birth. Mother imagery. God's not afraid to use feminine imagery because God's not a man. God's not male. All the way back to Genesis, the first poem in the Bible. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is male and female, both together. So God's perfectly comfortable using feminine and masculine imagery. Don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. The Bible is mostly from a patriarchal culture where masculine imagery was the dominant and normal way you spoke of God. But God himself is totally fine with implying or using feminine imagery as a symbol of his devotion and his love, just he is with masculine imagery. Again, he's not a big guy up there. He's not a big man. Nor is he the divine Sophia, the divine feminine. No, he's none of that. He's Yahweh. And, and masculine and feminine are both a pale reflection of his true nature, the image of God. So it goes on, verse 19. So after this rejection of God, after years of abundance in the land, and Israel's going to turn, and they're going to reject God. Verse 19, the Lord saw this and rejected them. Because he was angered by his sons and his daughters. I'll hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they're a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. This is what we looked at in the last chapter and in the covenant curses in the chapters before. God's, God's going to turn his back. If Israel rejects God, God will reject Israel. Whatever that's going to do for your theology, your, if you were Baptist and you are once saved, always saved, this is not a comfortable verse. To think of the implications. Um, but at the same time, let it. Let it mess with your theology a little bit. Because what it's saying is, again, if you reject the covenant, willingly reject the covenant, there's no promise of salvation. You will be cut off from God. Now, of course, in the New Testament, can you do that? If you're saved by the blood of Jesus, which is stronger than this covenant, is that even possible? Yada, yada, yada. Debate that all you want. That's New Testament. We aren't even there yet. But at this point, in this time, it is a very real and a very dire warning. God says, 
verse 21, there's a wordplay here. They made me jealous by what is no God, lo'el, and angered me with their worthless idols. So I'll make them jealous by those who are not a people, lo'am. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. A fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below, or Sheol. I'll devour the earth, it will devour the earth and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. So this is an image of cosmic judgment that's going to be happening for rebellious Israel and Gentiles alike. But here's the key point in this section. This song is in the very front and center of Paul's mind when he's writing Romans 9 through 11. When Paul thinks about the, the issue of Gentiles coming to faith and his fellow Jews, for the most part, rejecting Israel's Messiah, his mind goes back to this song. In your Bible, write in your Bible. You're allowed to write in your Bible. Look, I write in mine all the time. There's nothing unholy about it. It helps you. It helps you understand. In your Bible, when you are at Romans chapter 9 through 11, that whole section of Romans that people love to bring in all kinds of theology and read it into it, which may or may not be there, know that Romans 9 through 11, and write a little mark in your Bible, see Deuteronomy 32. Because Romans 9 through 11 is Paul explaining and outworking the history of, of God's people and the Gentiles and their rejection of God, rejection of Jesus, but also then the Gentiles being saved. All of it is in Paul's mind when he's writing Romans 9 through 11. So remember that whenever you're reading it. Just keep it in mind. There's a, there's a pattern here. There's judgment on Israel because they broke the covenant. Then somehow... That results in the nations turning to God. And then somehow that nation, the nations turning to the God of Israel and receiving blessings is provokes Israel to jealousy in the song. I will make them jealous by a people who are not my people. And that jealousy of the nations receiving what should have what originally was Israel's blessings as well, then Israel returns to Yahweh. And so ultimately you have Jew and Gentile together worshiping the God of all creation who all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 said, that's my plan all along. In you, Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Deuteronomy 32 is tying up what began way back in Genesis and it's painting this picture of somehow Israel rejects God, God judges Israel, through the nations, but he uses the na he judges the nations who judged Israel because they were not doing it out of noble purposes. They too were guilty. Then there's a turning back to God of the nations, which inspires Israel to jealousy to turn back to God as well. And then in the end, all Israel is saved. And who is all Israel? It's exactly who Paul says it is in Romans chapter nine through eleven. All who call on the name of the Lord. It's exactly what Isaiah says when he says in that day, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, all of them will be together, the people of God. There's nothing replacement theology about any of this. This is pure Torah from the beginning. God always desired that his people, Israel, would be of every tribe, nation, people, and language together. That's the mission of God. That's the overall purpose. And it's hinted at lyrically, beautifully, hauntingly in this song. Let's finish it up. So there's judgment though. Israel's broken the covenant. So back to Israel. Covenant curses are coming. Remember, you break the covenant with the suzerain, the curses are going to be upon you. So I will heap calamities upon them. 
I'll spend my arrows against them. I'll send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence, deadly plague. I'll send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless, and their homes terror will reign. Young men and women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. So this is the judgment of God, right? He's going to blot out their memory from mankind. That, that's a phrase that we've seen all throughout Torah, which means totally erase someone from any hope of salvation here or in the afterlife. That's what God's going to do. But before judgment comes, there's deliberation. God deliberates in himself. And this is where we get a little, we get to listen in to, to the, to the inter-Trinitarian, to the, to the Godhead deliberating among himself and going, but if I do that, then I do that. So this is what he says, verse 27, but let's wipe out Israel, blot him out. But I dread the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand is triumph. The Lord hasn't done this. They're a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. Now, who's the they in this section? Scholars are divided, but the bulk of the evidence literally seems to imply that the they now is they, the nations, the Gentiles, who are watching this hypothetical God wiping out his people. They're watching that and going, yeah, you know, God didn't do that. We did it. We wiped out his people. We came in and drove them out. We overthrew them. God's saying they're a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end would be. In other words, you're going to face judgment too. Just because you're God's instrument of judgment doesn't mean that what you're doing is righteous. You will be judged as well. Isaiah and Jeremiah will both pick up on this in regards to Assyria and Babylon later in the Old Testament. And what God is kind of mulling over, you know, wanting the Gentiles to see, how could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? In other words, Gentiles, hey, how could you defeat my people Israel so easily, which is what's going to happen, unless I'd abandoned them? That was not your doing. It's not because you're mighty, Babylon or Assyria. It's because I rejected Israel. I've removed my covenant protection. Verse 31, for the rock, for their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison, their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It's mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. Their doom rushes upon them. So all the nations that are coming to judge Israel, you know, God's saying their rock, their their wine is, is you know, Israel's wine was the choicest wine. It was, it was all metaphor, but Israel's blessings were from God. You know, their wine was great. Their might was great. Their, their fields and their vine, this and that. The Gentiles, the ones who God's going to use to judge, their vine comes from Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. Those are the symbols of wickedness in the ancient world. Their grapes are filled with poison. You know, bitterness. Their, their wine's the venom of serpents, you know, snake poison. Uh, God's saying, they're not from God. Their judgment is, is evil, and so I'm going to judge their evil. Have I not kept this reserve and sealed it in my vaults? In other words, this is, my, this, this is the domain of me and me alone as God. I know that nations rise and fall, and I'll use some nations to judge other nations, but I will not leave the evil unpunished, and I will not leave the righteous unvindicated. But how it's going to work out in the earthly sphere, you don't get to know all that, people, because it's in my vaults. It's hidden. 
I'm going to give you hints. I'm going to give you glimpses, but I still, the secret things belong to me. I am the sovereign orchestrator who's seeing how all of this unfolds. So it's mine to avenge. I will repay, verse 35, in due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. Their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. So now after deliberation amongst himself, the, the verdict is somewhat altered. It was, I'm going to blot their name out. But now God, after deliberating publicly, getting Israel a chance to hear the inner monologue a little bit, we get a, a revised judgment. It's judgment and mercy. So God, yeah, I will, the Lord, the Lord will judge his people, verse 36, but he will have compassion on his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. So he's not going to blot out Israel entirely. He's going to judge his people, but he's going to have compassion on his servants, the ones among his people who are still his people. He'll say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them give you shelter. See, now I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death. I bring to life. I've wounded. I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasp it in judgment... I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. So this is God's judgment. He's, I'm, I will judge the evil. I will judge the wicked. I, and it will not be pretty. I swear on myself, he uplifted hand, on my own self, the only thing worthy of swearing on in all of creation, I swear that I will be the one who puts everything right. Evil will be punished. Goodness will be vindicated. I'll be the one that does it. Rest assured of that. And then the song ends with one final verse. It's very strange. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his people, for his land and people. So somehow in this last phrase, this last stanza, God is calling Israel, <coughs> excuse me, calling the nations and Israel to rejoice together because of his judgment. That's really weird because his judgment was just against the nations who had uh, uh, judged Israel and Israel itself had been judged because they rejected. So how is their rejoicing? And especially why are the nations rejoicing? Because God used Israel and, and overthrew the nations themselves after they overthrew Israel. It's this whole cosmic game of risk almost like the board game risk, and God's moving pieces. How is it all going to work out? Chris Wright says in his Deuteronomy commentary, he says, the mysterious ways of God with the nations ultimately only find their true response in doxology, which means praise. So, so somehow, in some way, God's judgment of the nations, the wicked, and his judgment of Israel, the rebellious, in some way, at this point, we don't know how, end in praise by both the nations and Israel, the people who are following God together as one. How does that work? Don't know. What are the details? Couldn't tell you. We're going to have to wait centuries of Israel's history to see how this plays out. And then eventually the New Testament was going to, is going to tie it all up in a bow. And it's going to say, hey, you know how this all works out? 
by this little baby that's born in Bethlehem. And then that's how the gospel then ties all the pieces of Israel's entire history that had been longed for, waiting for completion. The gospel begins to tie those strands together and weave something amazing in its place. That's what Christmas is all for. That's what, you know, Easter is going to be the culmination of. We're, we're right now, this Bible study, if you're following along, in, you know, three more weeks, it's Christmas. So this is a perfect time. This comes at a perfect opportune time is how is all this going to happen? How is all of, you know, the, how are the nations and Israel together going to rejoice when both the nations and Israel have turned away from God and are fallen in sin? How's it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen by God entering into humanity as the faithful Israelite to redeem all the nations and draw both Israel and the Gentiles to himself into one covenant people so that all Israel will be saved. That's how Paul ties it together in Romans 9 through 11. So it goes on, the song finishes. So Moses came with Joshua, son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I've solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law, this Torah. They're not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them, you will live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. So Moses, tell it, God tells the people to tell Moses, these are not just, this is not just song lyrics. This is not just a national anthem. It's not just uh, a precious moments of the day to make you feel good. No, all of this, all of this, is life. Teach all of this to your people so that they may live in the land because I'm bringing them in the land for a reason. And that reason is tied up in much something much bigger than just God's people having land somewhere in the Middle East. It has cosmic significance. It's so much bigger than just that little parcel of land known as historical Palestine. This is, this is cosmic in scope. All the nations are involved, and your obedience and disobedience has a direct impact on the nations who are watching you, Israel. And the good news, the bad news, is that your obedience will result in your horrific suffering and judgment. That's the bad news, and it's very real news. And God wants his people to not go down that path. That's why he's telling them this in advance. But the good news is for the faithful remnant, even if that's the route that your country, your people, your nation goes... If you follow God, if you remain faithful, if you repent of your sins, and if you cling to him as your rock, then even through all of this, on the other side, there's vindication, there's restoration, and there's rejoicing for you and for God's people from all the Gentiles, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every language, all around the throne of God, praising him. That's the vision Deuteronomy hints at it. Revelation puts uh, faces on it. So next week, uh, like I told the group at Roots, next week we're going to look at Moses is going to die. This is the end. And before he dies, though, as every good patriarch, even though he's not technically a patriarch, but as, you know, Jacob, um, Isaac, Abraham, all, all of Israel's figures before they die, they pronounce blessing. And that's what next week we're going to look at. Chapter 33, Moses is going to bless the tribes of Israel and then that'll be it. So come back next week. Uh, there's a lot in this section. There's a there's so much in Deuteronomy. Um, 
I read a passage from Chris Wright's commentary, and we don't have time to read it on the video, but check out uh, Chris Wright's Deuteronomy commentary if you want to see uh, somebody tie all these strings together in this song in a beautiful way. Uh, but yeah, sorry again that this wasn't live. You got to put up with just me and a camera instead of a nice festive atmosphere, but it is what it is. So keep studying, keep reading, and we'll see you next time. Bye.